to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. This week we're talking all things open labour as the elections for the next executive committee are upon us. By the time you're listening to this, there are probably just a couple of days left to vote. So if you haven't already and you're a member of Open Labour, please do vote. Pleasure to be joined today by Alex Sobel, MP, Shadow Minister for Tourism and Heritage, if memory serves correctly, and also the Parliamentary Officer for Open Labour, the newly elected Parliamentary Officer. Thank you for joining me, Alex. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Michael. So obviously a lot of our listeners are probably... Um, you know, I'm, I'm making a big sweeping assumption here that a lot of them are open labour adjacent, as it were, and they're probably pretty aware of you know what the organisation exists to do. But if you talk to people in like CLPs, if you go to any kind of like Labour Party social, as it were, in my experience, I haven't heard the org mentioned much. So for for those people who aren't aware of what open labour is, in, in its own terms, what is open labour? So open labour is an internal group uh, within the Labour Party, really for Labour Party members and, and people in the Labour movement. It, it reflects a sort of democratic socialist tradition in the party, which believes, and I think the, the best way to do it is through the economic sort of prism, where, where we have people in the party who believe fully in, in states, command and control economics, that, that the centrality of the state should own and run pretty much everything on one end. And then on the other end, where they believe that, that more or less everything should actually be in the private hands and then the role of the state is just to sort of um, to uh, provide a sort of balancing lever to the private sector. Well, we in, we in Open Labour believe that, that, that the state has a role, a big role, particularly around infrastructure, but that actually that, that there should be democratic ownership of, of much of the means of production, if you want to put it in that way, that, um, you know, that we should have a much larger cooperative sector, mutual sector, um, that we should have models like you do in Wales with Welsh Water, um, those sort of models we should look at with a, with a vibrant private sector, which which again is is very um, tightly regulated by the state. It's interesting you bring up kind of the economic framing in terms of understanding open labour, as it were, because I think for a lot of people, certainly the last five years of the Labour Party have been it's been you know a kind of principal discussion about what goes on within the party and, you know, kind of factional positions on a day-to-day basis there. And I guess as we've all kind of, you know, as we've moved on from the, you know, the previous era of politics, pre-coronavirus, and also, you know, the, the era of Corbynism, as it were, ha- has it been easy to move on from that as the organisation? Or has it been, have there been some teething problems in terms of finding its place? I think, I think there's a slight misrepresentation of Open Labour historically, that, that some people, particularly on the sort of, um, particularly the Corbyn supporting left, have said it was just a reaction to Jeremy Corbyn. That, that is absolutely not the case. We, we tried a number of us, including myself and Tom Miller, who were two of the founding members of Open Labour, to do this two or three times during the Ed Miliband era. And we had trouble getting it off the ground because there were basically places where we thought we would find support where, where there was no support, where there was a feeling that our type brand of politics could be driven from somewhere else, whether that was the leader's office or somewhere else in the Labour movement. There's no need to have a sort of uh, organisation of of that sort of open democratic left within the party of members in the membership. I, I, I still believe that was a mistake. And I think if we'd started this in 2010 or 2011, um, it would have been would have been better actually for the politics, internal politics of the party. So we actually got a point at the beginning of 2015 and then and then particularly straight after the loss in 2015, that actually we weren't going to ask anybody else anymore and we were just going to do it. However however, however hard it was and however small it would be, um, that's what we did. Actually, we had our first meeting, proper meeting on the day 
of the leadership election result. So, you know, so so this thing is isn't a reaction is if anything, it's a reaction to the leadership of Ed Miliband in the fact that there were a number of policies we thought Ed Miliband bring forward when he was leader that never happened. You know, a particular disappointment was was the Labour policy around attrition fees and higher education, for instance, um, on fracking, where rather than just saying we're going to ban fracking, which now seems ridiculous that Ed Miliband didn't have a policy of banning fracking, but he didn't. He had test seven, I think, tests, and the tests were impossible to meet. But rather than just saying I'm going to ban fracking, um, you know, it was like, we're going to have seven tests. And we just thought, we need to have a policy where we just say what we mean, but when we're clear about it. And, and you know, one of the failures of the Ed Miliband era was that it wasn't clear about what it wants, what it meant. And, and we need to have a membership organisation, the party that was like that. And so that's, and that was one of the drivers. So I think we're sort of back round, sort of full circle now, where the, there, are, there are a number of things where it's good to get clarity and vision and to get membership views on and and sort of we're and we're sort of back round in that in that space i think i think the primary one at the moment which i think everybody can see is around electoral reform so the Labour party has a clear position on electoral reform has a clear position on a constitutional settlement obviously gordon brown's doing a really important work on a constitutional settlement which we you know again open labor through various means uh, are going to try and feed into and are feeding into you know so that so again it's just about trying to get some some clarity um, and and some sort of membership voice around it, around some of these policy areas. Without getting too much into it, I think you could probably chart quite a you know lucid history of the Labour Party through Ed Miliband specifically in, in terms of where he was then and, and where he is now. But it's probably a question for his own podcast, which you know we're all we're all huge fans of, obviously. So proportional representation, I think there is a. I think at this point you're probably. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of springboarding off on what you said. Um, there is definitely a kind of like majority view within the party, I would say, that PR is a good thing. Is is that kind of, is that reflected in Open Labour or is there a kind of diversity of opinion that takes like the, I guess, the line that, you know, first past the post gives, you know, socialists a lot of power in, you know, at a Westminster level and will be daft to break that up, basically. So, I mean, there was a recent poll of Labour Party members, which had 83 percent. Yeah. Labour Party members support um, electoral reform to a more proportional system, um, and I th- and that has moved, and that has continually been moving in that direction. I I, I think that it'd be very hard to find an Open Labour member that didn't support um, proportional representation electoral reform. Uh, it's been since the beginning. It's been our policy. It was it was um, the very first policy conference we had four years ago. That was one of the first things that we passed, and we all agreed, and there were. There was was there a dissenting voice? I don't think there was a dissenting voice. I think it was one of the things that just went through, and and we formed, you know, Labour. We didn't form, but we joined Labour campaign uh, for a new democracy, which is the sort of sort of broad coalition of groups in and around Labour that's pushing for um, electoral reform. So I, I I don't think there's there's much dissent. And actually, I think an argument within Open Labour is is that is that actually saying that first past the post provides stable governments, large majorities and PR provides coalitions of loads of parties where you can't get your agenda through. I think the facts speak against that because we're, you know, five years of coalition in this country, plus Theresa May sort of having to have confidence and supply. The last 10 years, we spent much longer without a majority in, in the House of Commons than we have with. Secondly, if you want to look at a successful party of the left globally, then probably the preeminent one is New Zealand. That and and the you know Jacinda Ardern has been elected through a proportional system twice, 
and the second time with an absolute majority. So I think it's, you know, I, I think I think there's, it's a fallacious argument to say that PR produces, you know, coalitions and first past the post producer majorities where I've given two examples where the opposite is the case. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's about it, it's it, it isn't true. You know, people worry about fragmentation of the system. Well, you know, I'd say that that, that the Tories are, uh, you know, the whole blue kip thing. The Tories are very uneasy with themselves. Uh, the, there's no need to consider, considering what's happened in other countries, that, that a, a party of the centre left would fracture and a party of the right, because it's a party of the right, not really the centre right, you can call this conservative party of the centre right, wouldn't fracture. You know, so I think that, that um, there's, a, there's a lot of people who, who are making assumptions which don't stand up to, to either comparisons of our own recent history or international comparisons. And, you know, and the bottom line is, it's just fair, isn't it? It's just people, you know, so many people in this country whose votes don't count election after election after election. And what is the point of them going to the ballot box? While, you know, if you have a change system, it means that everybody's vote counts and they get something of what they want, if not everything. I, I, I always can't get over the fact that the Labour Party uses a form of PR in most, if not all of its elections. I think it's, you know, it was the NEC elections changed recently to SDV, isn't it? I, I can't, I can't remember all the acronyms. And and then, but, you know, for the country, it's like, oh, you know, we're a little bit, you know, we're, 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 we're tepid on the issue, historically, anyway. Thinking also about, so we talked about a little bit about open labour and its and voting systems. You mentioned the Constitution and Gordon Brown's um, report that he's doing into it. I think he's doing stuff as well with, with Carwin Jones, who's feeding into that. The Constitution is, I think, tricky for a lot of uh, Labour members generally in England to kind of get a handle on because I think if you're like a Labour member in Wales and Scotland it's your bread and butter it's your kind of daily conversations that you're having in CLPs down the pub but in England it's it's more of a fraught conversation and it's not really at your fingertips in terms of I guess if we want to talk in, in terms of big ticket items like you know ideas about like radical federalism as Mark Drakeford's you know put forward recently and uh, Mick Anthony's put forward you know what, what is the kind of you know it, it doesn't there doesn't have to be consensus here but what is the open labor view about Britain's constitutional future we, we don't have a like a detailed policy document on this but I think that that, that there's some consensus around the fact that the way we do devolution in England is piecemeal and makes no sense you know so some places have metro mayors so we just got our metro mayor here in west yorkshire you know the the first female metro mayor as well tracy brabin and then you just go up the road you just go like from my from my constituency you literally go half a mile to where gareth southgate lives in swinsty um and they have no metro mayor you know they're just reorganizing the county council and the borough councils but they've got no prospect of metro mayor how does that work so what you know so we have, you know, Metro Mayor with powers over transport and, you know, we're on a journey towards getting, for instance, bus franchising to getting a tram system, etc., which other places have admittedly the particular tram system got without having Metro Mayors, but, but we never have. And then you've got an area which is in the travel to work area with no devolution, you know, so it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, we had this funny under Labour we had regional devolution in England, but with no political control. So we had RDAs with big budgets and quite broad, you know, areas of control. So one of my areas of shadow minister is the, uh, you know, in tourism is destination management organisation. So your visits or welcome to your tourism boards. And they were regional with big budgets under Labour. They were controlled admittedly by civil servants, not by politicians. 
but they, there was there was still based those civil servants weren't based in London they're based in the regions and now you know the government actually meant have published a DMO review a destination management organisation review and failed to do so it's one of my criticisms of the government that they meant to do it by the summer and haven't done it but that but it, it's piecemeal and everywhere's different Yorkshire's one of the places actually that's still got a regional organisation but the funding is arbitrary and different in different places the scope and the scale the number of layers all very different those are sort of things which having um, a sort of federal devolution model would clear up and and you, you can't do it well we'll do it we'll do it for transport here and we'll do it for tourism there we'll do it for skills here we'll do it for you know i don't know so, something else over there you can't you can't really do it like that we need to have a system where everybody's on a level playing field um, in the England English regions, because then we'll have further disparities. So the one place that's had regional devolution in England for the, for the same time, more or less, as Scotland and Wales, Northern Ireland, is London. They've got a mayor, they've got an assembly. I wouldn't necessarily pick that model myself, because, you know, it's a, it's a slightly skewed model. But, but why should they have had devolution for 20 years, elected devolution, and the rest of us have this sort of piecemeal settlement? It, it doesn't make any sense. And actually it creates even wider regional disparities. So I think I think where we are in open labor is that we agree that we should have a devolution settlement for everyone and that and that it should be there should be parity, you know, in terms of powers. It's interesting you you mention or you, you bring up the kind of you know, hodgepodge of devolution that happened under New Labour because I'm I'm from Cornwall. I'm in Cornwall at the minute, and the, you know there were I think it was three hundred thousand signatures in the end that went to that went to Number Ten Downing, Downing Street when the devolution settlement happened for Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland and London, of course. But there wasn't one from Cornwall, so it's to, to live down here. It's it's one of those like old bruises that people are still kind of a little bit annoyed about i think probably if there was to be uh, let's not get into the specifics of how devolution would work in the southwest because we'll be here all day um so moving on in terms of we've kind of sketched out a broad angle of where open labor is and how it exists as an organization i guess you know people are sick to death talking about coronavirus generally but over the past 16 to 18 months, how has the organisation really been operating um, as a whole? Like what, have it, what has yeah. it been doing over the past year? It, in, I think in some ways it's, it's been good and we've done some things we couldn't have done otherwise. In other ways, it's been really limiting. So just before, you know, the, the restrictions came in, we, you, know, dur- you know, during that whole period, we had the leadership election. If you remember the beginning of coronavirus, it's, it's difficult for people to remember, Keir Starmer wasn't the leader of the Labour Party. He only came in like three weeks into uh, us having the initial restrictions. So when we, we organised the hustings uh, in January last year, it was the very first hustings of the leadership deputy leadership election. It was our biggest ever, you know, um, event that we had in terms of in terms of people coming like around 300 people came to that in person that's amazing now to think 300 people could be in a room together in a labor party event that just seems incredible doesn't it hopefully we'll be back there at conference but that's what happened and that month was by far our best month in terms of membership then you know just a few weeks later we had to cancel the open labor london agm which had a lot of people signed up to it because of um, coronavirus restrictions we um, couldn't have our in-person conference, which is normally our largest event uh, every year, uh, which you know, which normally happens in July. You know, we couldn't have it this year either. You know, so we moved online. We'd already been using Zoom actually for the for the management committee meetings, national committee meetings. So we had the tech. We upgraded our Zoom account, and we started doing Zoom events. We've done 
I must be over 30 Zoom events. We had a Zoom conference as well. And we got Joe Stiglitz, who's, you know, multi multiple uh, Nobel laureate in economics come to speak. And if I'm honest, I don't think we'd have ever got Joe Stiglitz at an in-person open labor event. One, because we probably couldn't fly him across to the UK. <laughs> you know, we're not that sort of budget, you know, and, and, you know, and do all the things that we needed to do. That would have completely blown our budget for an event. And, and two, you know, you know, he's a busy guy, but doing an hour for us, you know, online from his from his flat in New York is fine. So, you know, so so it was dem dem democratizing. We had lots of really interesting events through the year and with people, you know, um, from from lots of different walks of life. You know, we had, you know, Lise Holdsworth, who, who's the president of the Writers Guild of Great Britain, who's, who's quite a well-known TV writer. We had Simon Ricks, who's based in the Kaiser Chiefs, do a cultural event for us. We had, you know, um, Lisa Power, who's one of the founders of Stonewall, doing an event, you know, and uh, LGBT. So we had people that 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 we, we may or may not have got to an in-person event, but, but we're a little bit outside the normal political firmament. They're political people, but they're not, you know, normally if you go to a Labour Party event, you have a member of the Shadow Cabinet, a Shadow Minister, a Labour MP, a Labour MSP, a Mayor. You know, that's that's our norm. But we managed to have a much broader and more interesting range of speakers who are, you know, broadly Labour supporting all members. I, I think in that sense, it was, it's a much, you know, it's a much more interesting um, set of, um, set of events we put on a much more often we would never be you know at one stage we're running like two events a week we'd never be running two events a week in person we just wouldn't have the capacity to do it and then they're all sat on our you know or nearly all of them are sat on our youtube channel so people can watch them back who don't think about open labor they just go to open labor's youtube channel and watch some of these events and go and think about uh, is open labor interesting thing or not apologies for production quality we're not that's not our if anybody's great video production and wants to get involved in open labor that would be uh, amazing so you know so so in that way it's been great but i think it has you know i think not being able to get together physically has really um hurt our hurt our growth because i think that that the one one of the difficult things in the labor parties is that um it's not all then the meetings in person meetings are not always the friendliest the place the most welcoming places and i think that 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 open labor is the one thing the people have said is that when they come to our events our events are you know open and friendly and welcoming and you know and and we have that sort of you know sort of reputation and 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 you know and and and, and so you don't really get that online you obviously you know on, online is quite a different sort of atmosphere so i think we have missed that and that that has sort of partly sort of maybe stymied our growth slightly so i'm really looking forward to be able to get together we've got an event booked at conference we've got we're going to do an event actually at the cop climate change conference in glasgow as long as those things are all in person we'll when when it seems safe enough for us to be able to organize our own event we'll do that as well we're not we haven't got we haven't quite got there yet but you know but we'll, we'll allow the risk assessments of other people's to, to guide us and we'll have events around their events i think we're all looking forward to, to getting back and you know getting back into these kind of um drafty uh committee you know committee meetings in in, in village halls you know it's a it's the bread and butter of, of labor party work isn't it and we've we've all missed it dearly but um thinking about conference obviously you've got the open labor event that's going on there you know god willing conference goes ahead and the virus is fine so looking forward to conference you know i'm i also i'm checked out of the labor party at the minute but i'm kind of like everything's gone online i'm finishing my degree and um like doing doing the podcast and things like that so i'm just like i haven't really paid much attention to as much of the internal stuff as possible so looking at, ahead at conference i think you know in, in your eyes what are the kind of big ticket things or, or things to watch out for at conference 
for um, for viewers and attendants. The NEC are going to put forward the rule changes as a result of the AHRC uh, report. And the most important one will be the independent disciplinary procedure. I imagine there will be a debate. I mean, I'm, I'm very hopeful that that will pass. I mean, I haven't seen the detail, but we do need to get to um, having that independent disciplinary procedure and not and, and the National Constitutional Committee having less of a role and having, um, you know, independently recruited experts in their fields undertaking that work you know it's a long it's a long running sore in the Labour Party I think in terms of policy motions I mean probably you know and I would say this wouldn't I but I think the big ticket item probably will be the electoral reform motion my CLP passed it as their conference motion last week I, I don't know about the country but in Yorkshire I know we've had at least six or seven CLPs pass it and if that's reflected around the country if you if you go into conference with more than 50 CLPs you know that's a uh, it's usually a good sign that that's going to be, you know, a major feature um, on conference floor. I imagine that we'll, there'll be, you know, things that the sort of perennial, I imagine that we'll have a, a motion around climate, Green New Deal, which again, you know, is great because it's the year of COP and, and it's great for us to be able to have a really strong position as the opposition going going into that, to that conference, which obviously is not really about an internal political battle in the UK. That is about a global agreement. and But we've got lots of sister parties in charge of countries all around the world, not least the United States. And so for us to have a very clear and strong position is 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 helpful. And people shouldn't underestimate that just because we're an opposition party. You know, we, we need to remember that we still have um you know global position, global influence. And I think there might be there might be some other rule change. I think I think we're quite likely to get things around benefit system and how benefits work, social care, those sort of things that I imagine that we'll probably end up debating. Obviously the the unions will bring forward contemporary motions as well. Maybe I mean it's set labour policy, but but maybe for for you know to utilise the the sort of media outlets, maybe something around fire and rehire, or maybe broader broader rights around around pandemic working and you know post pandemic working and post pandemic employment and economic measures. So I think we'll have to wait and see. But I think I think. Um, you know those. I think I think there will be more public-facing stuff than internal-facing stuff, and I think that's important. But I think we need to. You know, there are certainly after the HRC report that there are definitely some rule changes that could be brought forward by the NEC. So, Open Labour, obviously, the mission statement is is to be kind of Labour's open left, as it were. In terms of party culture, and in in terms of party culture, obviously, the rule changes going through about independent complaints are going to be hugely consequential and are going to probably cast a long shadow into the way the Labour Party is going to operate moving forward. What are kind of the other cultural change? What you know, maybe less rule-based changes, but what what are the kind of cultural changes that maybe Open Labour would like to? Well, you don't speak as Open Labour. What, but what is like, what is you know the Open Labour Party culture? What does that look like? I, I think that you know it's I definitely think that that you know we've been absolutely dominated by the sort of underlying issues to do with you know anti-Semitism the last few years, but now, and we just recently had had the um, definition of Islamophobia um, adopted by the party, but issues around Islamophobia, transphobia, anti-black racism are all, are all issues which actually need to be tackled right across political spectrum in all parties, but, but we're not exempt from that. And so, so we need to be doing a lot more in terms of training, education, having a much, much more supportive environment for people 
po- politics is and, and traditionally is seen as like quite a tough game. You have to toughen up and you know all of that. And I, but I don't think that's how it should be. And I think that's an open that's how it should be. It should be available to everybody, and it should be conducted in an environment that's opening and welcome. When we have, and obviously we have, and, and we're part of this, do have internal contests. There is, you know, there is only one position for this. You know, in each there's only one MP at the moment. You know, in each council there's only three councillors you know there's only so many slots on committees etc etc and there's competition of course but you know you need to be able to conduct that competition in a way that's inclusive politically and people make a choice you know not based on on sort of other factors but on you know political and competency factors alone really and i don't i don't think we're there yet as a party and I think that's where we need to be working towards. I think that's where, you know, Open Labour definitely definitely see themselves at, you know, that that's the position that, that, that we'd want, we want to get to, you know. And, and the the sort of the way that the, the party, you know, has been a difficult and hostile place for some people, you know, isn't a recent thing. It was, you know, it was, I, I was opposed to the Iraq war and it was, the Labour Party was a very difficult and hostile place for me during the Iraq war, somebody who opposed the Iraq war as a young activist, you know, but we need to be getting much better at that. And that and that everybody's welcome, irrespective of their political viewpoint. And this is like, you know, this is this is where open labor is maybe different from others is that you might not agree, you might be the biggest support of first past the post, you know, and open labor would absolutely say that's a valid view, and you should be in the party, right. But where it, you know, it crossed the line, obviously, is if is if you are, you know, racist or homophobic or, or whatever, that's where it crosses the line. So it's it's about it's about getting that balance a lot better and getting the culture of the party into that balanced place. Yes, yeah, so I, I think you know this is these are things that um, you know we can all take forward. I mean, I know in my CLP in Swansea, we you know it was you know fraught at times between like you know discussions between left of the party right of the party but you know managed to like pass documents to you know they called it keeping it comradely which i which was you know quite positive for the most part in terms of lowering the temperature of discussions which i um you know i, I certainly identify with open labor in that regard and in, in you know trying to just, just chill out a little bit you know come on we can disagree we can disagree but we can still be comrades looking to the future obviously it, it's a pretty interesting time in in British politics. I feel like I could have been saying that for the past five years and I wouldn't be that wrong. I mean, probably boring at some points. But, you know, as we emerge from coronavirus restrictions, hopefully, you know, for the most part, we don't have to go back into a lockdown again. But, you know, touch wood and all that. What is and, you know, there, there are kind of huge changes that are going to be happening in terms of where the Labour Party is going to be looking, politics is going to be less about, you know, public health, hopefully. Um, but if, if it is, you know, um, that's obviously a discussion for another time. You know, looking forward, as the new committee take their positions in the coming weeks, as um, Open Labour kind of, you know, takes stock, what, what, what do you think is next for the organisation? Well, I mean, we've got the Labour Party's policy review and Open Labour's just recently published a pamphlet on foreign policy in the in the foreword of that pamphlet, which I co-wrote with Mary Caldor as a former advice, Robin Cook, sort of outlines where open labour sort of the parameters are. And then and then the authors wrote their sort of their opinion, you know, um Paul and Harry, that is their personal being run the organization's opinion. And what we're hoping to do, and, and we had Lisa Nandy launch it and Wayne David, who's also um Shadow Foreign Office Minister, 
was there as well. And and I've personally spoken to that whole team actually about about what we're trying to do. We will want to do a um, to do a project around foreign policy. Because actually, you know, with one or two exceptions, there hasn't been a lot of talk around foreign policy and Labour's foreign policy approach in the last five or six years. There are some assumptions about what Labour foreign policy should be, but that's not necessarily where it is or actually what it should be and actually we've had you know the the geopolitics are very different to what they were in 1990 or in 1970 or to be honest even in the obama era you know things are are very different and actually the the not when to return the pandemic the pandemic's highlighted a lot of that so um so you know we're hoping to to potentially even get some funding and to do some work on that and and to work on that quite closely with um with the the shadow foreign policy team and to influence that and have you know you know a a a, a way of of talking about foreign policy is a bit different you know and, and getting a deeper understanding with labor members about foreign policy I pro- you know the is maybe the the least you know the area where there's least knowledge amongst party members and actually it's going to be very important increasingly important um, as things go forward, and then obviously the other thing, the big, I think the big, big ticket item, and it's always the big ticket item, but I think it's going to, we're going to see a change in it, is, is around economic policy. After the end of furlough, we're going to have a lot of people whose jobs might cease, or are going to change, or, or there's going to be a lot of insecurity and stability, because companies effectively, many of them, have been cushioned by furlough, and other things have been happening as well, as well as COVID, which means that they're customer base is different the way they trade is different and you know the way they operate is different and and i think that that might create that'll create a period of instability and the lay party one has to be have a forward look and have an answer to that in the future have a clear answer to that in the short to medium term in sort of three to three to ten years but also have a much longer look about what about what the world of work is going to look like in future and how we um and how we deal with it, and that that is quite a big and deep debate. I'm um, I'm not sure we'll have that at this conference. We might do. I might be wrong, but I'm not seeing a lot of um, motions around that. Maybe we need to get through the pandemic first before we do. But it's I think it's going to be a major feature of the next general election of how people are going to think. I think if we go into uh, an economic downturn because because of the sort of post post furlough effects then that's going to be uppermost in the public's mind and we have to be able to have a, uh, a narrative to talk about it and a solution for people. So again, that I think that's not something that we've um, done a lot of work on because we've talked a lot about the effects of COVID in COVID, which is the right thing to do, but we haven't had a forward look. But actually, Joe Stiglitz said some interesting things, which I think we would generally agree with uh, when he when he spoke at our conference. And we've got links with other people, you know, in the, in, in the field of economics. We had a session with James Meadway, for instance, as well. So, you know, so that that is probably an area of work we're going to we're going to look at um, as well. But that's not, you know, that's not been you know, signed off by the committee because we haven't really got a committee at the moment. But, you know, certainly I think that's something that, that myself, one or two other people on the committee have been talking about. And I, I, I very much doubt that we won't have something to say about the economics because I think they will be very much at the forefront of people's minds quite soon. So I think that was a, probably a whistle-stop tour of everything that Open Labour, all the, you know, various pies that Open Labour's got its fingers in at the minute. Mm-hmm. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts for our listeners about, you know, things they can do with Open Labour, about getting involved generally? Yeah. So, so Marco, you just said at the beginning that a lot of your listeners are open labour adjacent. We'd like them to cease to be adjacent and become integral. And so if you're not a member of open labour, join 
if you join before the 5th of August, then you get a vote in our national committee elections. A big piece of work for next year is we've got six regional groups who want to extend that around the country. So if you live in a region where we don't have a group in the in I don't know the West Midlands or the Southeast, um, you know, then then absolutely that'd be great to get involved. We have policy groups, we have a climate policy group, we have a justice policy group. Again, we're going to expand those out. We've got this foreign policy work we're going to do. Probably going to do this economic work. So it's a big opportunity to join and get involved, either you know regionally or in terms of particular policy interest you've got. So now's a good time to join and get involved. Well, that sounds good to me. Uh, I'll certainly be renewing my direct debit as soon as possible. So uh, yeah, thank you for coming along today, Alex. Thanks, Michael. And that brings us to the end of another episode of the Social Review Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please feel free to share it on the social media platform of your choice. It helps the show out massively. And if you have any questions you'd like to ask us, you can at us on Twitter, at SockReviewPod. Email us, SockReviewPod at gmail.com. Or leave a response to the Google form that you can find on our Twitter. Our music is The Dance by Kyle Cox, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you for listening and have a fantastic rest of the day.